Hi, my name is John Kim. I'm a therapist who went through his own rebirth many years ago, and I've been documenting my journey ever since, sharing my life lessons and revelations. I believe in casual over clinical, with you instead of at you. I come unrehearsed on purpose because self-help doesn't have to be so complicated. So today's guest is quite the legend. She pretty much coined the concept codependency. I don't know if codependency was even a thing before she put language to it. She wrote a book called Codependent No More in the 80s, and it went on to sell 7 million copies. You know this book because your therapist gave you this book. It's out again, and she has the revised update after 38 years. She is a soulful, kind, and uh, just a wonderful human with an amazing story. Uh, I learned so much from this episode, and I know you will too. Here is Melanie B. So, um, Melody, my first question to you, because uh, I am also an author, is what does it feel like to know that uh, 7 million people or over 7 million people have read your book? It's pretty astounding. Yeah. Does that make you want to just say, okay, I don't have to do anything else in the world. I'm the done. My life. <laughs> I, I have made my dent. I'm done. No, I, when I start working and start being creative, it just goes on and on. Yeah. <laughs> because then oh I God. get another idea and I think, oh, and it takes me about five years to develop an idea once I get it. So that means I have to live with that idea, mush it around in my head. I mean, mm. I become bedmates with that idea until I really get it. So I don't think I'll ever get tired of writing. No. Yeah. So um, we both have many questions for you. I'll let you, because uh, I don't want to hog this. Um, I know that uh, uh, your book and you have become foundational, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, what do you, what do you I, have? I, I have so many questions, but I, I really am just like, I, I have to say first and foremost for anybody listening, you know, um, I'm a huge fan. Um, when John said that you reached out to me on his podcast, I was like, I'm coming on this. <laughs> like I'm like going to fangirl out because, uh, in the last, I would actually say, well, few years, I mean, I started my own codependency journey when I was about 25 in Al-Anon and therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, but in the last probably two to three years, it's really been the kind of flag that I fly in my therapy work. Um, I teach classes around it. I, I talk about it all the time. And, and your book is really foundational. Uh, it's the one that, you know, most therapists recommend. It's, it's, well, it's I know. And so you know, that was my intention when I wrote it. Yeah, I was, um, I got thrust into this whole codependency thing before we even knew the word. Mm -hmm. And yet mm -hmm. I could tell something was fundamentally wrong. <laughs> With Will you actually tell us a little about that? So for those who don't know you, like I know you, like I'm, a, I'm like I said, a fangirl. Can you let us know like how you came to be, I guess what most people would look at you as like a codependency expert, even though you're not necessarily a therapist. It's like the, the, the kind of realm that you really, I don't even know, you created a dialogue for so many people. I created a label. I created a label with different subcategories that I found absolutely essential to my own recovery until I find out what works on me. I don't know. I don't have a clue what might work on other people. Mm -hmm. And I got thrown into this codependency thing, kicking and screaming. 
-hmm. I had just been through treatment for my own chemical dependency. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to work with other addicts and alcoholics. I wanted to help them. I wanted to share what I had with them. Mm. But then we have to put the women's movement into this perspective too. This was back in Minnesota in the mid seventies, very Catholic, yeah. Catholic state. If you knew two women that were divorced back then, you yeah. were exceptional. Mm. Women didn't get divorced. If they did get divorced, they led miserable alienated lives yeah except for my mother who i think if she was born in today's world she would be a lesbian (laughs) (laughs) right i think i could say that about a lot of women i know from that time for sure yeah yeah she just um she was also a pathological liar so i'm not sure if this is true or not but she claims to be the first woman in the state that was able to get a mortgage in her own name because mm-hmm. up till then women were looked at as chattel, you know, right. the men, if the men could earn the money, then the women didn't need to worry. So that's just for background. It was such a strange way of living. The patriarchy was strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If a man spoke, everyone nodded. If a right. woman spoke, no one heard. Right. So let's go back to me getting out of treatment. I went to work in a chemical dependency facility. I was happy to get any job I could. And of course, they wanted me to start as a secretary. Of course. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I I was in college at that time studying chemical dependency counseling. And all they told me there was, if you're dealing with the family of the alcoholics, just listen and nod and say, I understand. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, that... That could go on indefinitely with codependency. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it could just be this big loop. So I show up for work and I'm happy to do my secretarial work. And then the woman that ran the center, her and her husband started it along with my husband's relatives. He and his two brothers started most of the treatment facilities in Minnesota, not Hazleton, mm-hmm. but you know, the down and out for the normal people, the regular people. And so mm-hmm. my husband pulls me aside one day and he says, um, there's been a change of plans. If we want to keep our funding, we have to do something for the families. And we've decided you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. I said, I don't know what to do with them. I'm new here. I mean, I had these visions of working with my mother and it just didn't, nothing about it excited me. And they said, well, you're new here. That's why you get the job. So they threw me in. And these were, these were women that one woman died of old age. She was under 30. Her husband had been sent to jail. They had like seven kids and he had been sent to prison for the, um, I mean, these were hardcore codependents. Right, right. That would hang on and on and on. And so I was thrown into this group of all different versions of my mother. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what to do with them. I didn't have a clue what to do with them. Nothing I had learned in college helped me to do any kind of therapy with them. But as I listened, I also began to hear the pain inside me because my husband, that was a program director, he's passed now, so I'm not hurting him, who was program director. And one of the true big wigs, he was in the paper all the time. He was getting people out of prison. 
to use uh, treatment as an alternative. You know, he was a mm-hmm. big wig. He was also still a practicing alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't go sit in a group and, and say, yeah, we all got something we need to talk about. So I started picking everyone's brains. I started reading everything I could. And then I, I also started looking within too, because that's mm-hmm. the missing link when you're helping people, isn't it? Looking within ourselves. Yep. And after about, what, three or four years of this, and to see a difference in the people I was working with. Like they got it. They got, they could let go and, and not be abandoning anyone. They got what it meant a little bit to love ourselves. Although my mm-hmm. own journey with self-love has been a very long, arduous one. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked about self-love back in the 70s, but it was with a bit of skepticism. It's like, well, mm-hmm. how much can we do that? How much is right? And what does it mean? What does it even mean to love myself? But we started trying. And and there was a fire going on in the 70s back in Minnesota. Young people were getting into AA. And my work, I believe, helped young people also get into Al-Anon. Although that was still a little bit rigid back in those days. But it was Mm -hmm. a start. I mean, we we have to start somewhere. And it was the start of understanding what it meant to be codependent and this extreme role it plays in our lives and our relationships. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's such a deadly, insidious thing. This not loving ourselves and loving other people. It just, you know, creates all sorts of problems, doesn't it? How does it feel, uh, I guess, to see where we're at now, right? I mean, you you kind of created this momentum you kind of dropped this amazing bomb uh and now here we are you know however many what 40 50 50 years i don't know i'm bad at math years later i i I feel like we've accomplished proof of concept yeah right that's a good way to put it 38 years i believe uh since your book came out no yeah 36 38 i'm not entirely sure yeah which is basically uh about as uh, as old as vanessa um, can I ask you this for people who don't know and listening, what is your definition of codependency? Cause it's complicated. It is very complicated. Or maybe, or maybe it's I, not. I, I don't, don't like to be technical. I use my short form. It's people who love others more than they love themselves to mm. their and the other person's detriment or to other people other who person. feel more responsible for other people than they feel for themselves to their and their partner's detriment. Um, it's just mm-hmm. this lack of relationship with ourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it permeates everything we do. Right. So Unless can I ask can... you, um, with your story, how did that happen? Meaning how much of that was environmental? How much of that was, you know, your upbringing? How much of that was who you chose to love? Uh, how does one become um, codependent? That codependent? Um, most not all, but most people with codependency issues lived with alcoholism as a child. Mm. Someone in their environment was not acting appropriately, and the whole family tended to structure around the diseased person's disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And everything we learn by age seven becomes our life skills. So I see many, not all people with codependency issues, but many of them came from an alcoholic family. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I've also seen raving codependents who had beautiful families. So right. I, I don't, it's, it's a very normal human thing. And we also need to look at our society right now too. And we have so many nutters. <laughs> <laughs> we do. Put it bluntly. <laughs> running around i mean you have to be careful who you engage with and how you engage and that you don't get sucked into someone else's insanity it's um i being alive at this time is very exciting and it's also mm -hmm. very challenging yeah. and i'm coming to learn that the reason we were introduced to all these skills these great re recovery skills and recovery tools and this map to knowing ourselves better is because we're going to need them and we're going to need to use them because yeah. this is a crazy time in our evolution. It's yeah. just very crazy. Yeah, I, I love how you simplify it to say when you love somebody more than you love yourself. I always say one of the tenets of codependency is a lack of relationship with self, right? And mm -hmm. how that manifests. And a lot of times the way that I'll talk about it is to your point, people who grew up with alcoholism in their family, but really anybody who grows up with uh, a caretaker who is essentially incapable of putting that children that child's needs first, right? So mm -hmm. whether yes. that person has mental illness, whether that person has an addiction, whether that person is a narcissist, right? Anybody who has a parent can't see outside themselves, mm -hmm. basically, is is pretty much priming that child to basically do the same, right? To to only and see the other for ignoring themselves, never paying attention to themselves, and this total right. focus on others. And that, I mean, with women particularly, that was mm -hmm. the way it went. That's what it meant to be a woman, right? <laughs> right you had to and you couldn't offend anyone because god knows you needed a man to take care of you because how else were you going to survive and this right. evolution this evolutionary process of humans we like to think that it happens in big bang moments and then we're all cured or we're all new but it's not it's a very mm -hmm. organic little by slowly process of each of us making the best difference we can in our own lives first mm -hmm. and then sharing that with others, you know, sharing any right. gift they have, any light they have with others to help them. That makes me curious too. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. Um, what are life coaches? <laughs> I it's a it. new I, thing. It's a great, great question. Yeah. Um, uh, Vanessa and I are both um, clinically trained. So we're therapists, but we, uh, I also call myself a coach because, you know, with a board, there's a lot of, uh, at least for me, after going to therapy school, I wanted to work in a way that uh, felt more honest to me. So I called myself a coach because with the, in the coaching world, there's, there's no board. And so you can do things like, um, um, you know, meet people at coffee shops. And uh, I started to make house calls on my motorcycle I brought people into the gym and I started to work to work in kind of unconventional ways, uh, ways that a therapist, you know, wasn't supposed to work. And I have this kind of mad scientist part about me that always likes to kind of color outside the lines and experiment. So for me, um, that's why I call myself a coach. So I could do things like that. Um, but of course, you know, in the last 10 years, I think because of social media, coaching has exploded because of um, people coming over from like, yoga, fitness, addiction, uh, addiction. and uh, instead of going to therapy school, because not everyone wants to be a therapist, uh, they could 
get certified as a coach, you know, and it's just a, a, a quicker way to um, help people. And maybe have a niche, right? Like to your yeah, point, if somebody comes from fitness, they might spec- you know, specifically work with somebody with their nutrition and their physical mm-hmm. lifestyle as a coach. Um, instead of obviously as a psychotherapist where you're trained to kind of go deeper. Yeah. And I think now, now there's probably a lot of codependency coaches, uh, coaches who specialize in codependency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's this whole life coaching thing is new to me. I mean, we didn't have yes. it, but then the computer has made it possible. Hasn't it? I mean, the computer yes. is intricately connected to life coaching. It's changed our world. Yeah, I also think it's connected to this change that you were talking about that's happening right in our world. I mean, without the computer, without social media, like for example, we wouldn't know what was going on in Iran right now, right? And the incredible- I know, you feel like shifting. you've died if you can't find your phone. It's like, oh, I must be right. dead. <laughs> right. yeah. Well, now we're all, we're all addicts at this point, let's be real. <laughs> yeah, no, we're, we're looped in. The hard thing about, I think though, about the phones and this worldwide web is I believe it connects our own nervous systems and our electrical energy. Mm-hmm. to everyone sure. else is out there so if Agreed. we've got any degree of anxiety or uncertainty chances are it could easily be escalated unless we keep a fairly strong yes. grip on ourselves yes it's become um you know i know for me i don't know if you know what tiktok is but when i scroll through i uh um i feel my uh nervous system mm-hmm. uh, being activated because you're watching very um, graphic things like people fighting or getting scared or, mm-hmm. you know, animals being eaten. And this is um, what you're watching on TikTok. To yeah, be, I mean, to be clear, like, yeah. I'm not watching this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah, watching yeah. puppies and yeah. babies. But, and- you know, uh, it, it's yeah. because if you click on a couple of things, suddenly it, it rains. That, yeah. And then yeah, you're bombarded you have, um, with it. You're bombarded yeah. with crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. And I have to kind of hide my phone because sometimes, you know, women in bikinis and half naked people. But anyway, it's like the news. It's like the, it's it's like watching the news 24 seven. And now it's just on our phones. And I think, uh, yeah, definitely activates our nervous system. You know, I have a rule Melanie, that um, I don't I don't go on my phone. I don't go on social media for a minimum of one hour after I wake up. So I don't care what's happening. I don't care what I need to do. It can all wait. I have, we have a toddler. So I like the mornings. They're quiet. It's still dark slightly. I can be with my toddler and I don't want other people getting into my nervous system. It's almost yeah. like getting hijacked. Yeah, right? it is. It's it like, is you know, getting hijacked. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, so Melanie, going back to, oh, sorry, go ahead. What would you tell people looking for a life coach? How do they know if they've got someone they can trust that's reliable, that's going to give them sound information? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you and you know, this is where I think social media can be helpful because um if you follow their feed, you get a good sense of who they are. So back in the day, it was just letters after your name or a resume you read, but now you actually have a direct conduit into someone's life. So anyone who follows my feed on social media will get to know, oh, this is how he is. He's either for me or he's not, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's very powerful with uh um uh the the, uh, the internet is um, it is a direct conduit to people's life if they're active on social. So I think that's the best way. That and of course um, word of mouth. Yeah, word of mouth. Yeah, that's usually the best way. Well, yeah, and, and you know, someone now, who is great for your friend may not be great for you. Right. Yeah, and now they have you know one of the few things I like about this whole internet explosion is our ability to rate people poorly 
if we feel mm-hmm. they truly let us down, right, which right. can be helpful. We yeah. have no way of knowing that information before. It can also be something used against us, but, um, you know, yes, with, for the it's trolls, definitely a check and balances, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, thank you for answering that question because I, I still don't feel like I really understand life coaches, but I'm, I'm more open to them. Some of them are absolutely. You know, yeah. I think, yeah. I think a lot of it, Melody, is like as a culture, I think we are finally, um, and listen, there's, there's bad coaches. There's also bad therapists, right? There's, there's, I absolutely. Mean, you can find negative in any of it. Um, but I think as a culture, what we're finally starting to do, going back to what you were saying about like when the patriarchy was strong you know, this idea of the the therapist, kind of the old Freudian way of like, they're the expert, you're the client, they, they're completely blank, they tell nothing about themselves, you know, you are beholden to them. Like, that is a very patriarchal way of, of having treatment, right? And so it feels a little bit like this idea of the rise of the feminine. I mean, this collective way of healing, this collective, like, let me share myself with you and my struggles with you and I'll hold mm-hmm. your hand, you know, while you go through it. To me, it feels a lot like we're shifting more into, I would say, what how we're meant to heal, really, right? Which is in group. I mean, it's in, it's with each other. It's, it's not it's, like yeah, one. Person it's in relationship. Effort. Right. It's in exactly. relationship. Exactly. Whereas in the patriarchy, it was a little, you know, your therapist is up on a pedestal and then you're right. down yes. there. And I've right. never agreed with those kind of non reciprocal, non equal relationships. Yeah. 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 How did you start um, recovering from codependency? So once you were aware that this was a big problem and a theme in your life, how did you start recovering from that? Well, first I had to find out what it was besides a word I didn't understand that I was recovering mm-hmm. from. I had to figure out what the behaviors that, that I was doing that kept sabotaging me were. So luckily I worked in, by then I was working in a couple different treatment centers. So I was able to pull the good, therapist aside and say, hey, what, 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 and after enough picking around, I began to get some answers. I began to understand mm-hmm. rescuing. I began yes. to understand caretaking, the behaviors that will create huge resentments in us if we let them. Mm-hmm. Mm. It, it, it took five years. It took, it took me five years of research on this, of going inside, of looking at other people and to, in order to write that book. And I also used a lot of books in that. Then once we get this all sorted, you know, okay, I'm codependent. I might need help. Where do I start? Mm-hmm. Where it hurts. Start where it hurts start where it mm. hurts we're, we're not all going to have the same relationship with codependency and with our relationships so if we can find the point of anguish <laughs> we can start mm-hmm. working there to free ourselves from it i love I that love one that. podcast you advertised i think it was you about um this is your fault something like that <laughs> the oh. the old mm-hmm. it's not me it's you it's not me. It's yeah, yeah. Our, our book, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's actually our book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, um, but start where it hurts. That's a powerful sentence. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and you, you spoke to resentment. So I talk a lot about resentment, obviously, when doing my codependency work with people. And I, I like to use um, resentment as almost like the flag or like the, the barometer, especially when you're new on this journey, uh, in my experience personally, but also working with clients. 
we don't really have a good uh, understanding of our internal landscape, right? We've been so focused on the external mm -hmm. that we don't even know, like, how am I feeling, right? What yeah. is my passion? Or do what, I have a resentment? You? Yeah, exactly. because I've felt resentment. that resentful way for 20 years. <laughs> right, oh, that we I mean, know, there's... right? Like, we know that well. <laughs> and I always say that, I'm like, you might not know what your, what your passion is, but I bet you know what mm -hmm. resentment feels like, right? And yeah. you know it well. And so I, I, I have people almost... This is like an introductory kind of homework assignment to start really paying attention to the feeling of resentment. It's almost like they're, they're jumping off point to like, where is your codependency showing up, right? Mm -hmm. I'd, be, I'd be curious to know what you think about that. Because I also know you talk a lot about like the difference between anger and resentment. And I know you say this in your book. And a lot of people ask me that question too. Like, what's the difference, right? Well, I think anger is the original resentment. And then mm -hmm. when we don't deal with it, it turns, you know, it turns into a mm -hmm. resentment when we can't say no to someone. So we keep saying yes for five years. We build up a resentment. Mm -hmm. uh, there's so much fear in so many of us about mm -hmm. just saying, I don't like that. That doesn't feel good. Yeah. Yeah. And just acknowledging and accepting a feeling is really all we need to do with it isn't it? We don't need, we don't need a marching band. We don't need a big show. We don't even necessarily mm -hmm. need to tell anyone except ourselves. It's yeah. back to that relationship with ourselves. I'm feeling resentful. Why? Well, because I don't like doing this all the time. Well, have you ever told the other person? No, I just keep doing it. Well, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, stop, stop doing it. <laughs> yeah. And we don't need to say, well, I'm setting a boundary with you because you're a big asshole, you know? Yeah. Just we could just thing. say, no, I'm not doing that. Right. Um, we've really talked our way into this spot, spot as codependents, as people with codependency issues. We mm -hmm. teach people how to treat us. Mm -hmm. And then we get mad when they do what we've taught them. <laughs> yep. Mm -hmm. So true. Mm. Do you think, you know, I grew up with uh, an alcoholic father and my parents never being at home because the, when they came to America, uh, they were just in survival mode, right? So they couldn't speak their language and they're out, you know, working, uh, you know, 18 hours a day. Um, and so the kids were left at, at home. And so do you think that uh, that can set you up for codependency, meaning uh, just parents, you know, loving parents, but just never around? I, I know it did with me. Yeah. I, I never had that sense of a safe home with myself. Mm. Just mm. when I was all alone th thinking I'm good, I'm safe, I'm at home with myself. And then we can start easily running around looking for home with someone else because we don't feel like we have a safe, secure home with ourselves because we've been in a big building all alone for 18, 18 years. Yeah. So yeah. to me, but the key, what go ahead oh no i was gonna say how much of that is normal in that when you're growing up um the idea of a safe tree the idea of a safe home or connection to self isn't even formed yet because you're you know um you're seven or you're you know nine you're 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 making friends you don't have no sense of even in high school we don't we're just sponges but you your know? parents ideally your parents actually mirror and provide that safe home that and so yeah. it, it's just like our nervous systems right so before children's nervous systems are developed 
our, as the adults, we are basically a conduit for them. So their nervous system is essentially our nervous system. So until you are at the age where you would essentially have your own established sense of feeling at home, you're actually taking that, borrowing that, stealing that from your parents. So if they're not giving that to you, you're essentially then going out without that specific, um, I don't know. A baby knows, or, a, a baby, a baby knows, knows mm -hmm. when they're nurtured and loved and cared for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I never had that experience. Mm. I can't remember one time I felt that way as a child or even as a young adult or until I learned to create that feeling for myself. And, and mm -hmm. a lot of parents love their kids, but they don't have time for them. And, yeah. and no one teaches us, oh, you might have to do that for yourself. We're just kind of flopping around in the world trying to find a way to feel the way we think other people feel, but we don't know because mm -hmm. we've never felt that way. You know, it's, it's learning to love ourselves is the most important, hardest and biggest job any of us will ever have this lifetime. Learning to make mm -hmm. peace with our past, just be okay with it. We don't have to condone it, but we do need to make peace with our past. Anything we're in resistance to will keep coming back to haunt us, anything. Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I know for me, my mom told me constantly how much she loved me, but the, but the, the verbal message and the nonverbal messages were different, right? The nonverbal message was, I love you when I love you when you're acting the way I want you to, when you're mm -hmm. making my life easier, when you're performing, when you're achieving. Right. And she wasn't doing that purposely. She wasn't doing that consciously, but I mean, how, what does that lead to? Right. That leads to then me, continuing mm. to perform to perform to, to be loved, loved. Mm -hmm. right also i gotta say you know i'm 49 um you know and a therapist and uh and i have a two and a half year old and yeah i mean i mean i i, I can't even imagine being you know 19 20 25 having a baby um and broke. having broke and, and and you know being worried financially like trauma that we have yeah, yeah i'm barely holding on i'm 49 with an education I know, all so the normal like, everyday trauma especially over the last seven years has been so intense there's yeah. been so much cultural trauma going on every day in our world yeah. that uh, to keep ourselves at peace and calm and feeling safe and at home in ourselves I think should be each of our biggest jobs because when we do that, then we can help other people learn how to do that. And can you just imagine a world where everyone felt peace, peaceful and calm and loved? I, I, I mean, I can't really, but it would be nice. I know. Right. Dream, dream world. Would you say then, cause this is something I also talk a lot about. Would you, would you say that culturally, and I don't know, maybe past versus present versus future, but I, I like to look at it that, culturally i think we're a codependent society i actually think it, it it's bigger than just on the individual level i i mean i i think that we are taught from a very young age that love looks feels sounds like what we might define as as codependent the disney so, movies the disney right movie version of love or the current popular series version of love which has right. almost nothing to do with love or very little at any rate. I, I think many of us expect way too much from our relationships. Mm -hmm. No one can ever, 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 ever make us happy. That's our job. 
Mm-hmm. It's we're never going to be any happier in a, in a relationship than we can be not in a relationship, than we can be on our own. We're, we're, we take ourselves there. And so if we're not happy, we're going to get into an unhappy relationship. It's well, not really we'll push you back on that, even though I agree. Yeah, you know, uh, what's interesting is you, you just said something really powerful that we're never going to be happier in a relationship. Um, until we're, we're happy with ourselves. Mm-hmm. But I think we're programmed and wired to believe that we're not going to be fully happy until we find the one, mm-hmm. Prince Charming, you know, the princess, whatever. And so uh, I know a lot of people who are successful, um, but they're not happy because they haven't found their partner. Mm-hmm. And so they go through life very kind of lukewarm and searching. And then when they find their partner, what they're bringing to the table is not like this whole kind of person and then that ripples into the relationship not having legs. What they're bringing is a lot of expectations and, and uh, wait for that person to be that missing link, right? Like that's a lot of pressure to be like, well, I haven't yeah. been happy until I met you. So now you yeah. go do that. Make me happy. Yeah. Now, now you're my source of happiness. Yeah. That's a big job for anyone. And we really can't. How did you start to uh, build your relationship with yourself? So speaking what does that of. What look like? Yeah. What did that look like for you back back then? Well, taking into account normal dementia, I can't really remember one thing because that's been quite a few years ago. It meant starting with my point of pain, just like I said before. The problem wasn't being married to an alcoholic. The problem was I felt I had to stay married to my husband because God could never love me, and I would be a total failure if I divorced him with two kids. Mm-hmm. And so I had to extricate myself from that relationship. And then it got fun. I mean, my career took off. My happiest time was the, the what, three to five years in Stillwater when I was writing and the book was taking off and I was raising the kids and then my son died um, mm. in a ski accident. So, I mean, we're here on this great journey. And I think sometimes we expect it just to be like perfect or very good. And we get really upset when it's not. But very few yeah. people have those types of journeys that I've found. I know I haven't. It's been a lot of ups and a lot of downs. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, none of it's promised, right? I mean, we we expect that. Like, and to it, love like, myself. To be owed to us. And, and yeah, but what I'm not doing anymore is turning on myself when I'm down. That's one of our mm-hmm. favorite tricks as codependents. When something bad happens, something that we didn't want to happen, something that we don't really know how to explain, we will turn on ourselves in a heartbeat, mm-hmm. and, and that's not helpful for self love. <laughs> it's it's mm-hmm. just not we need to learn what it means to have true compassion for ourselves and to not judge ourselves and to be able to calm ourselves or, or to soothe ourselves when, when we get nervous and essentially to solve our problems. We're not babies, although we have a strong inner child, but to know how we can do this dance of life with our feelings, with the complexity of life, with all the crazies out there now, and that we can, get through each moment we can get through each feeling we can get through each disruption without 
turning on ourselves and we can learn to make destiny friendly decisions and not go around crash bombing through life. Um, Destiny, destiny friendly decisions. Do you feel that um, as a writer, as an artist, uh, as you are writing not only this book, but you know, all of your books, do you almost feel like this um, um, almost like a possession, something greater working through you uh, to be a catalyst and a conduit, uh, 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 you know, a, a prism to so many people using writing as a tool? Writing is so mad. Or is it you me. hate it and you're just staring at a blank page and it's like, you know, grinding? <laughs> <laughs> no, my daughter says she loves to have written. But I, I really, <laughs> I really relish. <laughs> I'm with your daughter. <laughs> I really relish the actual act of writing. I mean, I go into a, but I don't write every day. I only write when I have something to say. Mm. And it's usually pretty, pretty focused, but I, I consider it a very magical art. Um, Yeah. I feel the same way. You know, uh, it's not easy. And there are days that you're staring at a blank screen, but a lot of times uh, when I'm writing, as opposed to say, if I'm doing videos or other, other things, um, I almost feel like uh, there's something running through me that's spiritual. Mm. And uh, I just kind of let myself go, get out of my own way. And then, you know, Share the light. because I don't even remember writing books and, and you probably don't remember writing that book. <laughs> you know, it just came out. I, I remember moments, you know, what when I did this um, redo on this up, upgrade on Codependent No More, thought, how am I going to go into this book and get back to the mindset I was in when I wrote Mm -hmm. the existing chapter 21, break it up and make it look seamless. And then I remembered when I was writing it and I thought, no, when I got to chapter 21, back in 19, what, 85, 86, I just had this feeling in my soul that there was something missing in there, something Mm -hmm. else. But I didn't know what it was because I didn't know about the trauma in my own life yet. I had mm. no idea. So I went, I did the best I could. I wrote what is now chapter 21. But when I went to do this, uh, this redo, I almost traveled back in time and I was able just to slide into mm. that mindset. It was, it, it's a magical process. I, I think writers are the luckiest and most tortured people in the world. I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tortured for sure. Uh, so let's talk about your new book. I mean, this is a reason why uh, you're here today. Um, what is different about it? It seems like one of the big things that that does different is it uh, when you you're with your first book, it was more uh, through the lens of addiction or alcoholism, yes. and now it's yeah. less that or. Right. Well, it's it's less that and it's more Aquarian. Yeah. Because many of these changes we are going through are about entering into the age of Aquarius. So I took a, I went, my editor and I went through every word in the original book. I didn't want to diagnose people with their diagnosis, like not calling people mm-hmm. alcoholics, calling them people struggling with alcoholism, mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. struggling with whatever they're struggling with. I made it more inclusive. There's new stories in the book. I mean, 
I wrote that in 1986. It was like looking at my high school yearbook. You know, yeah, I did that same kind of cringing because even our vernacular, the things I described as goals, common goals we might have, some of them were were very cringy. <laughs> like well, maybe your goal is- very indicative, right? Yeah. Who, I'm sure where you were at your life. Yeah. 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 So it was just a thorough combing of this book and making it uh, more fit to enter the age of Aquarius. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, some of my key triggers- I had really protected them in this book because one, I didn't want to get sued. Two, Eleanor says, you know, we we can tell our story, but we can't tell other people's stories. Mm-hmm. Sometimes telling your story in isolation though gets a little bit weird. Yeah. Right. So but all those people are now deceased. So I don't believe in speaking ill of the dead, but I felt more freedom to tell the truth in sure. situations that where I didn't really have that freedom back then. Mm-hmm. Um, my greatest pride and joy is the chapter on trauma and anxiety in this book. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. I think I'm going to call it my favorite chapter I've ever written. Mm-hmm. I just yeah. finished it actually a little while ago. It, it, it's powerful because you can tell it's you, your tone, you know, the way you speak, it's very you, but it does feel, I don't want to say bigger than the rest of the book, but it feels, it feels different. It feels like it comes from, uh, like not just you, the earthly person, but it feels like it's a little bit more of a channel. Yeah. And by then too, what I had another 36 years uh, experience as a writer, but it's more than that. There's something, there's something as magical about that chapter as there is magical about language of letting go, because that was the last book I wrote before my son passed. And that book just, I'd write something. I go, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that chapter is magical. I think it is. It's a special chapter. We have some questions from the audience, and I uh, want to be oh. res- respectful for your time. Um, but I put on social media that we are having you on today, and so um, I thought maybe the audience can ask you a few questions. And so here's, and we won't go to too many, but um, here's some. Someone says, uh, what's the best way to break the cycle when it comes to codependency? One way. I don't know if it's as much a pinpoint as it is a process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because until we feel an action in our guts and our souls and our heart, we're not going to be able to take that action. And recovery is about taking a lot of actions a little bit differently than we took them in the past. Yeah. What about this question? How do I stop? This is a really important one. How do I stop beating myself up for being too codependent? So the word codependency now, you know, has stigma around it. Mm-hmm. And I think we toss that around a lot. And so a lot of people, when they feel that they're being codependent or they can't say no or set boundaries, then there's this like self bashing or beating themselves up for being codependent. So how do I, stop I know I've, I've spent a lot of years doing that on myself. You know, it's yeah. like, Oh, great. My goal wasn't to be the queen of the codependence, was it? (laughs) Um, And just like, but it's being codependent isn't a disease. It's a human reaction to life. Mm -hmm. And it's a gateway to many of us, sometimes for the first time, having the freedom to discover who we really are. Mm. How do I really feel? What do I really want? 
What would it mean if I felt loved right now? What would I have to do for myself to feel loved, to feel accepted? Be let myself feel a feeling, maybe stop beating up on myself. What would it take for me to feel nurtured and loved in my relationship with myself right now? Mm-hmm. And that that's that can be difficult in the beginning, sorting that out. Well, also, you know, no one teaches us, you know, it's, right. it's nothing we learn. So it's, uh, it's very abstract. And, 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 and even now today, when I think about self-love, um, what do I need? I don't have fast answers. You know, mm-hmm. I sit with it. I don't know what, you know, it's, so I'm very unsure of, of uh, what that looks like. And I think many struggle with that, you know, well, it's easy yeah, what to are say all the things we want our partner to do for us that we aren't doing that would right. make us feel loved and cozy. And you know, can we pick up the slack? It just, you know, it starts with talking nicely to ourselves. Being kind to yourself, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Many yeah. of us just talk so dastardly to ourselves. Sure. I mean, I, I do. I would never talk to a hum- another human the way I talk to myself. Yeah. But we need to go in a little bit deeper and pick up these threads. Because until we know what we're doing, we can't stop doing it, can we? Right. Yeah, I think um, the idea of needs and your partner is interesting. John and I have in our own relationship, we've been having, and I mean, every couple does, but recently we've been having a lot of conversations around what that is, right? Needs, like I have needs, you have needs, like how much is, how much of these needs is your responsibility to meet versus how much of these needs is my responsibility to meet, right? And I mean, those needs can can kind of permeate all areas of your life, but I, I feel like clients also struggle with this in their in their relationships. And like you said, there's no kind of right or wrong, or like you said, John, easy answer to it. But um, the fact that we're even having this dialogue, I think is is obviously very different than say relationships 20, 30 years ago. But I guess I'd be curious to know your take on somebody saying to you, how do I know what's my responsibility and how do I know what I should quote unquote be asking for from my partner? Well, it's different in every case. And we have to start by writing down what we feel are our responsibilities Mm -hmm. and what we feel are our partner's responsibilities Mm. and then like any good writer kind of letting that cool and taking a second look at it uh, I don't know I've I've never met anyone not yet that wants to hold me and nurture me and talk sweet to me every time I'm upset because usually other people are very busy living their own lives and they don't want to have to Mm -hmm. you know pat me on the head every time I get upset. Sometimes it's the little things that can make us feel much more self-loved. Yeah. And take maybe a big load off our partner or a lot of resentments off our partner. Half of the time when I'm resentful, it's because I'm treating myself badly. You know, I'm volunteering again to do something I don't want to do. We need to get into integrity with our own relationship with ourselves, with our heart, what we really want. We need to stop, oh, for the love of God, stop saying yes when the answer mm-hmm. is no. Right. Mm-hmm. We don't have to explain. We can just say no. Yeah. We can stop making unfriendly decisions. We can start being aware of when we make a choice that sabotages us. Am I teaching my new neighbor? Am I teaching my child that I'll be responsible for them and they don't have to be responsible for themselves? What are we teaching? What are we saying with our own behaviors? 
how much respect and love do we have for ourselves that's coming through in our everyday ordinary relationships. Um, I think one of the worst things I saw after Codependent No More came out was when people interpreted as, oh, it's all about me now. It's all about me now. It's yeah. not mm-hmm. narcissism. That's not what mm-hmm. we're talking about. We're talking about a gentle, humble self-love. Yeah. A quiet, a quiet self-love. Oh, I like that gentle, humble self-love. Yeah. Yeah. I also would say too, um, one of the things that I feel like I've kind of connected the dots on is how codependency, I mean, this is how I describe it, but I see codependency in relationships um, or maybe codependent personalities, I guess is a better way to put it as almost the other side of the narcissistic coin. And what I mean by that, when I tell people this is both are other oriented personalities, right? Mm -hmm. Both are, are kind of trying to fill this void that they have internally with other people Mm -hmm. um, or with things outside of themselves. Right. And so it makes sense that in many ways they tend to be very attracted to each other. I mean, the number of times people come to me and they're like, I keep attracting narcissists. And I'm like, well, we should probably do some work on your codependency, (laughs) you know? Um, but I have found so many similarities in that personality structure. And look, obviously the, the motivation behind the behaviors is different. I'm not saying codependents are narcissists. I mean, we all are to a certain extent, but I do find that there's a lot of similarities. And, And if we look at it like that, it can help us kind of take ownership and responsibility a bit more. Yeah, I've also noticed that most people I would like silently judge as narcissists are people who, if I back up a little, seem really scared and not all that sure of themselves. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Like a, it's, it's like a lot of bluster. Narcissism oh, yeah. is. A lot of other focus, it's, it's just a lot of bluster. Bluster is a really good word for it. It's like, let me do all this distracting over here so that you don't see that inside. I'm actually like this little child. I'm really scared and I don't trust anything I say or do. Yeah. 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 It's, um, I've never heard the word bluster. Bluster. I don't even know what that means. Bluster means like big wind, like a windstorm. Like a, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, yeah. A lot of tap dancing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I gotta say, um, I want to give credit to all your books. I know uh, the Codependent More has blown up. What what is that? What is that like for an author when when one um, book just you know becomes this mega hit? Does that put pressure on you to like? Um, do you put a lot of pressure on you to now compete with yourself as you write, or, or do you? No, I've, I mean I've written earnings? some books where I I'd say right out I'm going to. This is a quiet book. It's not going to have mm-hmm. a huge audience. It's for someone mm-hmm. that wants to go a little bit deeper. I, I usually set my intentions with each book. Um, I wanted Codependent No More to be written and read to make therapists' lives easier. It's mm-hmm. like, read this yeah. book, and then we'll talk. Different language to things, yeah. yeah. So Well, it worked. <laughs> yeah. You it accomplished did. It. it. did. Yeah. It did. It did. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're for... a gem. I mean, I, I have to say again, I, I'm not trying to fangirl out, but I, I, I hope you know deep down how influential you've been for so many people and how, um, how great your impact has been. And, uh, you know, you've changed a lot of lives and I mean, mine personally too, but you've, um, you know, you've had a really big impact and we just hope you realize that. Also, Thank why you. why not fangirl out? Okay, <laughs> that so is... I am fangirling out. <laughs> yeah, You're yeah. Uh, what is absolutely what is, lovely, both of you? What is next for you? 
I've got, um, I'm going to do a workbook about mm. uh, codependent no more. I'm going to get a, do mm. a hands-on workbook that will kind of guide people through some of these in-depth purges. Mm-hmm. And then I've got a new book I want to write. Um, nice. For well, we're five, five years been, to buckle down, right? <laughs> no, I, I've been I've been hearing this book and carrying it around for five years. It's all I can do not to make reference to it in my interviews, but I'm very excited about writing it. That's but ready, I was very excited about codependent. Long. Awesome. And where can people find you? They can't. <laughs> that's you know what? That's the best boundary answer I've ever heard. Yeah, that means you know that's proof that you're not codependent anymore. <laughs> you being off of social and not letting people know where you are is proof that you have uh, actually come out the other Don't side. Go work. Yeah. <laughs> I have a web team that makes little bits about me and I guess they're working on my website now. I'm actually trying to learn how to make TikToks but a different kind. I have some Ooh. animal stories I want to tell about my own rabbit, nice. about a penguin I rec- recently met. But I don't want them to be crazy. I want them to be cute little heartfelt <laughs> stories. And it's very hard it. to find someplace you can learn to and then tell those kind of stories on social media. So that's yeah. my next. Oh, my God. I little. love this. I'll be, I'll be watching and following along. And uh, sharing the penguins, all penguins are cuter than they're made out to be. They are. The I think penguins are cute. So I, I agree with you. <laughs> cutest animal in the world and i have a rabbit i have a long-haired rabbit um doug that's my pet and doug. i love that his name's doug it's a her it's a she oh she and that's part of this story she she was found in a community garden and the woman that found her thought she was a he until oh. she took her to the doctor yeah so it, mm. I want to like bring maybe a little more heart to some of these yeah. media things in my own storytelling. That's all. Oh, I love it. I love it. Thank you. And we're all excited and anticipating uh, what you do next in your next book. And we'll definitely uh, pick up your work as well. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Be well. Hey, if you have a passion for helping others and you want to create a more meaningful career or add to your current skill set, it's time to become a life coach with Lumia. When I became a life coach many years ago, there wasn't anything like this. So I developed this program alongside with Noel Cordeaux, Lumia Coach Training. And it's amazing. It's 100% live and online, meaningful, evidence-based education, real people, real community, ICF accredited to with 20 diverse instructors in a thriving alumni community. Go to theangrytherapist.com and click on Become a Coach and explore Lumia Coach Training. I'll see you in class.